If you're driving around Omaha and you see the billboard that I saw recently, and it reads in big letters, the Bible. And then below it, it says, the guide to life. The Bible, the guide to life. How do you process that? How do you respond to that? Do you think that's spot on? Or do you think that's false advertising? Or do you think it's better than the other billboards? The Bible, the guide to life. Well, I suppose we could say, well, it depends what you mean by life. Uh, We could say maybe it depends on the passage you're talking about. But among those like you and like me who are, are serious about the Bible and we try to read it earnestly and seriously, oftentimes if we say the Bible, the guide to life, what we end up doing is we, we end up looking for the passages that might apply to our lives and we think I've got to do this for life or, or we might uh, look for the greatest examples and I've just got to make sure I'm like them when they're at their best for life. And what oftentimes happen, happens, hopefully not in your life, but oftentimes what happens is we think we can. We, we think we can. Maybe we compare ourselves to other people and you think, you know what, I'm following those timeless truths and principles and characters from the Bible and you know what, I've got it. And it tends to, to promote what we, what we would call self-righteousness. You know what, I'm following the Bible, I'm following the principles, God's going to accept me, i got to figure it out. The Bible! The truth for life kind of thing. Well, or something else happens. Kind of another extreme. If we think the Bible, the guide to life, we, we think, yes, this is what's required, I've got to do these things, I've got to follow these examples, and what ends up happening is we despair Because we're maybe a little bit more honest with ourselves and we think, you know what, I can't live up to to the expectations. And then we read and we hear Jesus say things like we're going to hear here shortly. I was going to say in a few weeks, but I might be lying. In chapter 5 of Matthew, when Jesus says, be perfect. And only the most self-righteous person would think, glad I'm okay. What we end up thinking is, oh, no. Be perfect. He says, be perfect for, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, so what are we to do? The Bible. The guide to life. Here's what I do. I read it in the best light. The Bible is the guide to eternal life. And the only way you could ever gain eternal life is by feeling the devastation of be perfect for uh, as your heavenly father is perfect and say I can't do it and then to look outside of yourself to someone else we would say he's our perfect representative and his name is Jesus and we would see him as the one who earns it for us the Bible the guide to life eternal life in Christ it's a good billboard (laughs) if you're thinking Christianly Here's, when you read the whole Bible, what you tend to, to produce in yourself and what it tends to produce in other people is, is reading the Bible in light of the main character. And reading the whole Bible in light of the work of the main character. And that's what we're doing in our study of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew.
The main character in chapter 1 says, even the reason his name is Jesus is because he came to save. Can you help me finish it? We've been doing this long enough. He came to save his people from their sins. It is indeed the guide to eternal life through faith in Christ. And then now we read it, and now, yes, maybe we start discouraged because we hear the bad news, but then we're encouraged and we have assurance and, and motivation and gratitude. Indeed, he's a great Savior. It reminds me of Martin Luther when he said, when he referred to ha- as having the right man on our side. We want the right man on our side. We want a perfect substitute in Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to learn about the work of Jesus in his temptation in the fourth chapter. And so if you turn to Matthew's gospel account, chapter four, we're going to look at the first 11 verses and it is going to be awesome. We're going to see the right man on our side. Okay, so the world may be filled with devils, to paraphrase Martin Luther, and satanic oppression and assaults, but the good news is for us, and you need to know this, the right man, capital M, the right representative, the right substitute is on our side, and he is on our side in awesome display in Matthew chapter 4. Think about the temptation of Jesus. I know you want to read it. Just hold on. But think about, think, think about this. There would be no Christianity apart from the temptation of Jesus successfully completed. There would be none of it. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no justification. There would be no reconciliation. There would be no, no such things. If Jesus weren't tempted as our representative and if he weren't successful as such. This is a great, great passage. And I'm excited for us to be able to study, to study it together. Chapter 4, verse 1, we'll only make it part way. It says there in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'm not overstating it to say if that, if that weren't going on here and if he's not successful, we would have no hope. It's strategic in, in, in the, the development of redemption. In the wilderness, in the desert, in the dangerous place, in the alone place, the scary, frightening kind of place, no help, no support kind of place. And Jesus is led up. Well, notice he he connects it to, to what just happened before, Jesus' baptism. So Jesus is baptized, and if you look at the end of chapter 3, almost the end, in verse 16, it ends with, this is Jesus, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And I drew an arrow and connected it with Spirit of God rests on him, special anointing, blessing. This is true. What the Father says is true. This is my son. I'm well pleased. Spirit comes there as as an emblematic representation. It's real. It's true. The same Spirit, right? The same Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Fascinating. The Spirit doesn't lead Jesus to the safe, nice, beautiful place. Takes him to the danger place. He takes him to where he needs to go so Jesus can act successfully as our representative. Okay? And if you're thinking Satan tempted Satan, Adam, Satan, Jesus, you're thinking the right way. 
I know you're thinking the right way because the Bible, inspired by God, speaks in terms of a first and a last Adam. Two Adams only. Two official representatives. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Inspired. Okay? And so there's the parallel here. They're not parallel in every sense, but there's definitely a parallel. But the par- I, I, and notice that they're not parallel in every sense because Adam had it going on, right? Adam had a perfect wife. A- Adam, Adam's belly was full, right? Jesus is going to fast for 40 days. He's in the dangerous place. There weren't any dangerous places before. So now Jesus' work is going to even be greater as the last Adam because not only are we at zero, if you will, we're in a hole spiritually when it comes to guilt and adversity. Indeed, he's the right man who's on our side. But do notice, this is intentional. This is by design. This is according to purpose. He's going to save his people from their sins. And I keep bringing that up because I'm reading the, the, the temptation in light of what we already know to be true about his name. He's doing this as Savior. Okay? Our tendency so many times is to read the temptation as example. And, and it's a great example, don't get me wrong. But Jesus is acting and he's doing what he does, chapter 1, verse 21, to save his people. He's representing. Oh, this is going to be grand and glorious. I, don't, I, I shouldn't sound so excited about this, right? This is terrible. This is dark. The perfect one, Right? The one with God's blessing is going to be taken to the dangerous place and he's going to suffer and he's going to be tempted and it's going to be awful. This ought not be happening. This is how bad things are. But we, we know how it ends so we, we, we have to smile and be happy that he's doing this for us. But this is, how, this is how he loves us. As an aside, this is a striking example of God using, in in technical jargon, we talk about secondary means to accomplish his purposes. Here's what I mean by that. Secondary means to accomplish his purposes. The devil wants to do devilish things. Satan wants to do satanic things. The serpent wants to do serpentile things. Anyway, I was on a roll. He's acting according to his own desires and according to his own nature. God's not doing the tempting. But God is most definitely sovereign, using the Spirit to lead the Son to be tempted by the devil for a good outcome. We see this all over the Bible, but we certainly see it here. Then the fasting in verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Classic understatement. Why fasting? I have a few questions for you. Why fasting? Well, fasting is often associated with grief, difficulty, associated with focus, sometimes both of those things together. There's something big going on, something significant going on, troubling going on. But what a contrast this is from the first Adam. Next question is, why 40 days? And we need to take a little bit of time on this. It's actually really important. Uh, You should also know that there are going to be three phases. If you need an outline and you're just itching for one, I got one for you. So there are three phases to Jesus' temptation that he succeeds in and therefore proves himself to be the right man. There you go. But we can't get there yet. 40 days. 
Well, let's just do the, let's do the Captain Obvious one first. I mean, you don't even need to know much about the Bible to know that if you haven't eaten for 40 days, there's a problem, right? This is extreme. He's hungry. He's weak. He's susceptible. He's not coming at this again like the first Adam is. And so there, there's the obvious part. But also, 40 days is parallel to Israel's testing in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, he's testing them. And you might say, but that's 40 years and this is 40 days. Interestingly enough, glad you brought that up. In Numbers, chapter 14, verse 34, there's actually a correspondence between the, the 40 days of spying on the promised land and because they wouldn't trust God, because they wouldn't trust God in the testing and they refused to trust God, those 40 days were met with 40 years of wilderness wanderings and testings. So the Bible actually makes the connection. I'm not doing fancy footwork with numbers. There's a parallel here. And also, I know the parallel is intentional because of the verses Jesus is going to quote. He's going to quote verse after verse after verse dealing with Israel during their time of testing, during their time of wilderness wandering. Those are the texts he's using. And so you say, huh, wonder why. Well, the reason why is because Jesus, unlike, remember chapter 2, Israel's called God's son delivered out of Egypt, and then it's applied to Jesus delivered out of Egypt from Hosea. Just like, similarly, not just like Adam was tested and failed, Israel is also a son. Okay, Hosea 11.1, 1, Matthew chapter 2, and Israel, even though God is kind and generous and has great promises again and again and again, they're unfaithful. And Jesus will be the faithful where they weren't faithful to temptation. And so again, we'll look at some of those texts because I don't want you to think I'm, I'm being fanciful about it. There's also another reason why it's 40 days. And that's because two different times Moses fasts for 40 days. Again, same wilderness wanderings, but Moses, who is a sinner, fasts as a mediator between sinful Israel and their lack of faithfulness unto God and God. God, please spare them. God, please spare us. And Jesus is the ultimate mediator. So that's why, again, in, in Bible studies, we would say Moses is the type because he's not perfect. He's, he's, he's a mediator. But looking forward, anticipating the ultimate mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Listen to some of these texts. Deuteronomy 9, 9 says, uh, he fasts for, on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. De- Deuteronomy 9.11, similar. Deuteronomy 9.18, then I lay prostrate. This is Moses before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Listen to this. Here's why he did it. Because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Deuteronomy 9.25, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Deuteronomy 10.10, 40 days, 40 nights. The Lord listened to me. That time also the Lord was unwilling to destroy you again because they had a mediator. 
So I at least want you to see that that's intentional as well. And we're not reading into it too much, especially given the fact that Jesus is going to go to Deuteronomy and reference the same kinds of texts. This won't be the last time either where you see a, a resemblance between Moses and Jesus, even the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he's the ultimate preacher, the ultimate lawgiver, if you will, and then he's going to be the one who fulfills that law. Too much information? I hope not. Hope not. You should, I, I literally, I think I cut out a hundred Bible verses from my sermon this morning. So, I don't know if that, it just says a lot about me. I don't know that I have a problem. Um, but it's so helpful to see we're, we're, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, and some of us are, some of us aren't, some of us are in between, it should be jumping off the page. Oh, Mediator, Moses, not perfect. Jesus, mediator, perfect. The people are tempted and they succumb to the temptations every single time and grossly. Jesus, tempted, he is victorious, quoting the same Bible passages. He's the one. He's the one. Now, three phases of the temptation. I'm itching to go back and talk more about Deuteronomy. We'll, we'll keep mowing because we're going we're to come back to it. Verse 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, so this is after 40 days of fasting, this is difficult, hard, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, I circled and drew an arrow to chapter 3, verse 17, because God from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. We're meant to see it. God officially pronounces, you know what? The ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior, the ultimate mediator, the one who should rule and reign forever, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is Him. And so what happens? Then the Spirit of God leads Him into the wilderness and says, if you are, you prove it. And He's going to tempt Him. Are you really fit for this job? In one sense, I have to read into it and say, has God said? Has God meant it? We'll find out. Make food for yourself. Now, is it wrong for Jesus to make food? I'm not trying to trick you. <laughs> no, he does it on multiple occasions that are recorded. Miraculously so, feeding people. So, but, but that's, that's, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is Satan is tempting him to do it. So he's following Satan's instructions instead of following the Lord's instructions, instead of, uh, of doing the right thing on our behalf and successfully completing the task and overcoming the temptation as representative, which is what he's supposed to be doing now. Satan is tempting him to do something that wouldn't otherwise be bad. So then verse 4 says, but he answered, it is written. As an aside, we're learning something about Jesus' doctrine of the Bible. Um, I have no choice as a Christian whether or not to believe the Bible is true because I'm a Christian and Jesus believed the Bible was true. But that's an aside. It's an important one. 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That also tells me something about his view of the Bible, something very important. This is so different, chapter 4, verse 4, so different from the actions of the previous Adam. What God says matters most because He is God. All of this is done to, for, for, for Him as the last Adam to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. What God, what God says matters most because He's God. I need to treat God like God because that's sane. I'm not going to do what you suggest. I'm here to do a job and I'm going to succeed for my people. Flawless devotion. As representative last Adam. Now where the quotation comes from is also really important. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can turn there. You don't have to turn there. But from Deuteronomy 8, that's wilderness wandering talk. Listen, listen to this. Well, he says it in verse, if you're looking in verse 3, man does not live by bread alone. But that comes in a bruiser context. Back in verse 1, I mean, that's, that's in verse 4. Back in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 8, the whole commandment that I command you today, Israel... You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. It's testing, he says. You have to keep the commandment to show what's in your heart or not in your heart. Deuteronomy 8. And Israel crashes and burns. They're the unfaithful son. You, you read the end of Deuteronomy Chapter 30 and chapter 31, which, is, which are the verses I wanted to read all of today, but I use self-control. You, you might be in chapter 8 and think, oh, I wonder how they did. And you read the end of the story and you go, oh, oh my. This is awful. This is terrible. I kind of want to read some of it. Obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed. That's positive as long as you do the right thing. Verse 11, this is chapter 30, I think. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. God's not asking for too much. Verse 15, see that I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, your, your God, that I command you today by loving the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord, your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Just treat me like I'm God and everything's going to work. It's a test. Then listen to verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Skip a bunch. Chapter 31, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to, to lie down with your fathers. 
Then this people will rise and whore with a W after the foreign gods. They will forsake me. I mean, it just goes from bad to worse. I have too many verses. 30 and 31 of Deuteronomy. Okay, here's why I bring it up. The whole thing is, if Israel would just treat God like he's God and therefore would value his promises and value his words, the words that come from the mouth of God, it would mean, it would mean blessing in life. And 30 and 31 show us it's anything but. Now, here's where you need to not check out and come back. You say, tell me more about Jesus. Okay, I'm trying. Jesus is the right man. Jesus is the faithful son because Jesus does exactly the opposite of what Israel does. Exactly the opposite. And we know we should connect the dots because he's quoting those texts. In other words, how about that? In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm overcoming the temptation that nobody ever has before, whether it be Adam or Israel, that God gave them so much. It's not been done. I'm here to do this, Satan. And we know, and that's why we say the right man is on our side. So we trust in Christ. He's doing and has done what nobody ever, no one else ever did. Jesus is different. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the one who overcame temptation. He meets the obligation. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. I love John 4.34. Then we'll move on. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Few things more valuable in life than food. Because it's hard to live if you don't have food. Bread is the most basic, at least in general vernacular in that world. And Jesus says, the most important thing in the whole world is what I do. And it's to treat God like he's God. And I'm doing so on behalf of my people. It's so good. We literally don't have the gospel without this. We, we, don't, we don't have Christmas, Easter, or anything else. We have nothing. We have no hope. The right man is on our side. Capital M. It's fantastic, if not fantabulous. He's the one you want to be spiritually aligned with. You want an application for the sermon? Don't look to anyone or anything, certainly not inside yourself, to be accepted by God. Look to this one. Okay, phase two of the temptation. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city, which would be Jerusalem, and set, on, set him on the, on the pinnacle of the temple, high point, and said to him, if you are the son of God, here we go, here we go again, if you are the son of God, the faithful, loyal, true one, the one history has been waiting for, the ultimate son, the one who would be qualified to rule and reign forever according to 2 Samuel 7. If you are the Son of God, then it says, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Isn't that interesting? Jesus quotes Scripture. Satan's like, I've got Bible verses too. I mean, we just saw Jesus... Quote scripture, and now Satan quotes scripture. Hmm. 
Now, interestingly enough, Jesus is apparently not pleased with everyone's use of the Bible. So when you're in that Bible study, rolling your eyes inside of your head because that guy is there, just know there's precedent. Just saying. What Satan says is true. It's a good verse. Right? Psalm 91. Yeah, good and important. But not in the situation. Not in the scenario. Because in order for him to do this, he's got to take his eye off the ball, if you will, as far as treating God like he's God and doing what God says according to God's timeline. Now, this is super interesting. Talk about irony. The next verse, he quotes Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. This is sweet irony. Psalm 91, verse 13 says, The serpent you will trample underfoot. (laughs) I heard something like that before. Now again, does Satan know it? Maybe he does. But it is sweet to know that Jesus is the one who is in the process of doing that. It's in the Bible what Satan says. Therefore, it's true, but it's not fitting here at this time. Verse 7 says, Jesus said to him, again, it is written. And I'm going to write in my margin in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, back to that Israel in the wilderness testing and tempted thing. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm on earth. I'm going to quote from chapter 3. I'm on earth. I'm here right now to fulfill all righteousness. And I'm not here to do anything else. You can quote me true Bible verses, but what I'm in the business of doing right now, even in this engagement with you, is to fulfill all righteousness. And I'm not going to be deviated from that and put the Lord God to the test. That would be foolish. Israel did it again and again and again, and God was anything but happy. Deuteronomy 6.16 is about Israel's lack of faithfulness. And when you read the rest of the book, you see it goes from bad to worse. What I'm suggesting to you is that I'm reading this in light of Matthew 2.15, out of Egypt I've called my son, which is a quote of Hosea 11.1. I keep saying this every week, which is about Israel. Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills that. He's the ultimate son. Are you seeing a pattern? I hope you are. And by the way, we're not the only ones seeing the pattern. I'll just quote one Bible scholar, Leon Morris. Each temptation was defeated by citing a passage of Scripture that had reference to the temptations that confronted Israel in the wilderness. Again, we have the thought that Jesus fulfilled Israel's vocation. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness. I have to confess to you, this is just another reason why I am bent on reading the Bible from a Christ-centered perspective. He's the hero. He's the one. He's the ultimate son. He is succeeding where son Adam, according to Luke, fails. Son Israel, according to Matthew, fails. 
He's the one we're waiting for. He's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's the one who will defeat Satan. Okay, phase three of the temptation. Third installment. Again, verse, nine, uh, verse eight says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Must have been supernaturally high because look what's going to happen next. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse 9, and he said to him, all these things, excuse me, all these I will give you, all these kingdoms, if you will fall down and worship me. So what is he offering? Universal reigning, dominion, power. Those are actually good things. Things that are actually given to Jesus. But not now. Not without suffering. According to God's plan for this to happen. But Satan wants Jesus to have a good and appropriate thing, by the way. From him and not from God. He wants him to treat Satan like he's God. Again, he wants him to do anything but fulfill all righteousness. He wants him to do anything but love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants Satan to have that spot. And he says, I'll give it all to you. Now, was it Satan's to give? Some of you are saying no. I I agree with you. And let me be a politician. Some of you are saying yes. I agree with you. Don't compare the sound bites. (laughs) He is called the ruler of this world. So I'll give him that. But, But it's not his to give in an ultimate sense, obviously. He's also called the father of lies. John 12, 31, ruler of this world, at least in the short run. John eight forty four, father of lies in the short run and in the long run. The devil wants devotion. He wants allegiance. He wants submission. He wants preeminence. He wants to play, be in the place of God and divert Jesus from fulfilling all righteousness. We won't take the time to go there, but Philippians chapter 2 talks about this great, great reality of Christ actually having this because he's on the route to coronation and exaltation, which, according to God's perfect plan, is a route of suffering. Again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Satan's offering some kind of cheap knockoff perversion of it. And Jesus is devoted to his Father, and he's going to experience the actual real deal. Okay, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Even the grammar is vivid. Go, Pat Vernacular, scram. Done with the word. Why? For it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Again, same kind of text. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve it's always been about that. It is about that. It's about having God be treated like God. That's the only sane thing to do. And Jesus is as sane as you could be. This is reasonable. This is right. There's only one true God. Treat the one true God like he's the one true God. But he quotes the Deuteronomy text because Israel, were spir- Israel was spiritually insane. Okay. 
And it ends catastrophically. Verse 11 says, Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Success, right? He's successful. How how different this is from the garden. But he's the one who is going to stomp on Satan. There's more to come, but we're, we're seeing already the right man's on our side. This won't be the last time he engages the devil. But he's the Genesis 3.15 one. And you know the great thing? Here's more application for you. The great thing is if you're trusting in Jesus, you're united to him by faith. He's your, your man. He's the Adam you're trusting in. Listen to what the Bible says about him as it would relate to Satan, as it would relate to you. Or excuse me, as you would relate to Satan, united to him by faith. Romans 16.20 says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ gave him the death blow. But in time and in space and in our experience, since Christ's work is already done, the Bible can say, and soon he'll be under your boot if you're in Christ. It's great great. No more hassles. No more difficulty. I love Romans chapter 16, verse 20. I should have wore boots for that. What should we learn from Jesus' temptation? Well, let's, let's, let's learn that it's not good to follow the devil, but I think we already knew that. Let's learn the Bible's true and powerful and it's Good to fight temptation with Bible verses. I think we already knew that too, and those would be good things and right things. But let's learn. He's faithful where no one else has ever been faithful. He is faithful where no one else has ever been faithful. He's therefore the one you want to be trusting in. He's the one. One final text, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, 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 can read, I read that verse earlier in the week in a different setting and I thought it was true and awesome. He always, He gives us the victory. But now that I've studied this passage, I like it even more. It's even more meaningful always gives us the victory. See, you're not always going to be victorious in your Christian life and doing the right thing and overcoming temptation. And if you think you are, you probably need to see a counselor or have an intervention. You're not always going to be victorious. But the Bible teaches because of the victory of Christ, like in our text, He always leads us in victory before God because he's the victor he's the victor let's pray Father thank you for this morning thank you for a great great 
time of studying your word together and learning about the power of Christ. Thank you that he's faithful where Adam wasn't, where Israel wasn't, where we certainly are not. And we're thankful that he's a faithful savior who can be trusted. And we're so impressed with him that we want to serve him and honor him with our lives. Motivate us to fight sin and to fight Satan's temptations and to do so because we know we are ultimately victorious in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.